Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I am honored, delighted, and humbled to be with you this morning here in the great state of Georgia. And I bring you greetings from the great state of Texas, probably the greatest state of Texas. But, but you know, it's just a great state. Um, uh, and when you're there from there, you've you got to tell everybody about it. You want people to know about it. I understand your, your pastor has some kind of connection with that Texas thing. I, I don't understand it, but I'm glad about that. But, but he did at least go to the deep south and, and marry a beautiful woman. So, so I'm excited about that. And, and uh, you know, I often tell folks in Texas, I'm originally not from Texas. I'm originally from Louisiana and got out of there as fast as I could. But, um, yeah, 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 I know. It's, it, it, it's a great state, too. It's a great state to eat is, is what it is, a great state to eat. If you want food, go to, go to South Louisiana. It's great. It's great. But I told people when I moved to Texas, I didn't really think that Texas was the South. It's not really the South to me because when you're in New Orleans and you're from New Orleans, that's how I really say it, um, you understand that the South is really the South. So the South is, you know, New Orleans, Mississippi, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, parts of Georgia. Um, you know, that's, that's the South. And, and then everything else, I, I don't know what you're talking about in Texas. It's more like the West, and, and they're, they're learning. I'm teaching them a lot about what it means to be Southern, but that's a whole other thing because I'm really Cajun, and so that puts me in a whole other category altogether. Um, it's not even polite to talk about what that means. But So I am grateful to be here and excited to be here. Had a great time uh, with parents yesterday talking with them. Um, you've got an amazing youth pastor here. Uh, that's doing incredible work and, and wants so much for young people to know about Jesus and to accept Jesus and to understand who he creates them to be and how he wants them to live. And, and I'm proud of him for doing that. I'm proud of him for being brave enough to invite me in. I'm kind of a scary creature uh, to bring into churches because I typically talk about things that people don't want to talk about in church. Um, I'm not going to quite do that this morning, so I'll just give you all a, a chance to kind of take a deep breath and relax. I'm not going to say too many things about sexuality, uh, so that's good because um, I usually say a lot. I've already done it in college. That's, I think that's why they let me talk in the college class this morning so I could get that kind of out of my system and then we can come talk to you all. But uh, we did talk about some things there, <clears throat> so ask the college students. They can fill you in. Uh, but I so appreciate being here and Dr. Mills for inviting me in and, and for just being in this beautiful church. I'll have an incredibly beautiful church and, and a great place. And so I'm excited to be with you this morning and going to share with you uh, kind of the word of God and what he's laid on my heart for you this morning. And, and it goes along with this theme that we have this weekend for our young people. What is your identity? What, what, what is that about? What is your identity? Who are you in Christ? And you know, that's a question that's been asked for millennia. I mean, really and truly. Everybody wants to know, who am I? I mean, it's a, it's a philosophical question that philosophers look at all the time. It, it is a moral question that I think we all have to answer. And it is a question that I believe is at the heart of most men and women. Who are we really? What is our identity? How do we identify ourselves? You know, if we, if we went out into the world and we just did a survey of people out on the street, uh, and we asked them, you know, how do you identify yourself? It's kind of amazing the kind of answers you get. I was looking through a bunch of... Uh, interviews actually online of that very question and it was quite fascinating to see that that people kind of identify themselves in sort of different categories different ways like for instance a lot of folks when they asked well who are you they said I'm human that's a pretty good observation I'm, I'm glad they at least can know that they're human uh, that that's one way of doing it some people say well well I'm male that's kind of their sex and they identify themselves by their sex I'm I'm male and some people said well I'm a man well, that's kind of your gender, at least that's the way we say it in the world today. We separate sex and gender. I'm not quite sure why we do that, but, but nonetheless, that's what the world's doing now. And so they both had a sex, and then they had a gender, and they said, I'm male. Uh, another person might say, well, I'm Asian. 
and that's called of ethnicity. Uh, they, they identify themselves with that ethnic group of people. Other folks might say, well, I'm African-American. That's more of like a race uh, of, of people. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm a person of the United States. I'm, I'm American. And so that would be sort of a, um, a place of origin. And, and we could go on and on the way that people might identify themselves. They could say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a brunette or I'm a blonde or I'm really smart or I'm not so smart or, you know, I'm, I'm this or that. And there's all these things that we use to identify ourselves. And it's kind of fascinating to me because as much as we gripe and scream and yell about the fact that we don't like labels, we seem to just put them all over us. Like, we can't hardly exist without just putting a whole bunch of labels out there of who we are. And, and I think part of the reason we do that is because labels have a way of distinguishing us and making us unique from everybody else around us. And the reality is everybody wants to be unique. That's fascinating, too, because we all want to be the same, but yet we all want to be different. I don't know how those two go together, but, but that's what we, we, we try to do. We all want to fit in. We all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, yet we all want to be unique. We want to be noticed. We want to be seen. And we live in a world today where people are screaming and clamoring for attention. And so as a result of that, they've put all kind of labels and things upon themselves. Now, how you think about yourself and what you think about yourself greatly influences the way you actually live out your lives. It's really important. Matter of fact, it's, it's really one of the most fundamental things about who you really are and how you live. For instance, there's a study done in Purdue University that took children and educators, and it said, um, we're going to take these children, we're going to put them in two different classes. One class of these children, we're going to tell them that we believe that um, your ability to learn is a fixed reality. In other words, you are born with a capacity to be smart or not be smart, okay? And so these one, this one class of students, they said, well, we've tested y'all. We've put you in this class because we believe that your ability is limited. It is fixed in time. It was set up at birth. You're only as smart as you are smart, and that's just the way it is. In the second class, however, they began to say to those children, well, we believe that your ability to learn is an ever-evolving reality. We believe that it, that it can grow and expand, and we believe that you can learn more and more and more, and it's not fixed at all. It's completely variable, and it all depends on how much effort and energy and, and interest you put forth. Now, the teachers went into both of those classes, taught exactly the same things to, to, to those students in exactly the same way. Well, guess what the results were at the end of a, 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 a semester of teaching those children? The children who believed that what they knew was all they could ever learn didn't do very well on any of the tests they were giving. They believed that their, their understanding of what they could learn was very limited by some reality of fixed entity that, that wouldn't allow them to go beyond where they were. On the other hand, this class that, that had been told that, that your education and your ability to learn continually grows, well, they just excelled. And they learned even beyond what the teacher was expecting them to do. You see, the way we believe impacts how we live out our lives. I'll give you another example. Let's pretend for just a moment that um, we've got two chairs up here, and we've got two people seated in the chairs. In one chair, we're going to have Billy Graham. God love him. Brother Billy's going to be right here. I'm so excited that he's here. And then in this chair right here, we're going to have Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay? Now, I don't know if you know Jeffrey Dahmer. Some of you may know him. Some of you may not know him. Some of you young ones may not know who he is. But Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer. Okay? He killed 17 people. Um, I don't know why 17, but that's just how many he killed. Um, he killed 17 folks back in the 90s, kind of between, really, between 78 and 91. Um, he was called the Milwaukee Cannibal, 
okay? Because not only did he kill him, but he chopped him up and he ate him, okay? He's kind of weird. He's kind of a very disturbed man. Um, but you got Billy Graham and you got Jeffrey Dahmer, two very different individuals, would you say? Okay, you got both of these folks here. Now, let's pretend that I'm going to grab a pistol, two pistols, actually. They're going to be loaded. I'm from Texas, so I have them with me all the time. Um, I, hand one, I, had one pistol, I had one pistol to Billy, and I had one pistol to Jeffrey. All right, then I step back just a bit, and I begin to insult them. And I begin to talk poorly about their family and about their mothers and about their friends and about anybody that's significant to them. I make horrible, horrible, terrible, demeaning comments about both of them. Which of the two people should I worry about the most killing me? You can answer this, not a rhetorical question. Okay. Yeah, we talk back when I preach, okay? So, yeah, so Jeffrey Dahmer would be the one you would be worried about. Why? Why would you be worried about Jeffrey Dahmer? Because Jeffrey Dahmer has a history of killing people. More importantly and more, more based to that belief is that Jeffrey Dahmer believes that he is a murderer. He knows that he's a killer. He has already said to himself, this is the identity that I'm going to take in. Now, Brother Billy over here, he's a fine man, loves the Lord, believes in Jesus. He believes that even if I'm going to insult him and tell, say terrible things about him, that, that he should forgive me and realize that I'm just a very broken person and it must be coming out of a place of pain. And so Billy's never going to pick up that gun and shoot me because Billy learned a long time ago, you don't kill people just because they say mean things to you. You see, in the toolbox that Billy had, there was no reason to be vengeful. He says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But Jeffrey, on the other hand, picked up a toolbox that said, you know what, if people say bad things about you, just kill them. You see, what you believe affects how you live. And so here we are today, and we live in a world that is telling us to believe particular things about ourselves, and those things are affecting how we actually live out our life from day to day. In fact, it goes all the way back to the garden. You see, it's not a new ploy that the devil has. In fact, there's nothing new under the sun. The devil just has the same old sins. He just recycles them in new ways. And so sure enough, all the way back in the garden, we see Adam and Eve coming into the picture. God creates them, places them in the garden, gives them some instructions, puts them in this idyllic, perfect place, tells them that he is their God and they are their, his beloved children. He's hanging out with them in the cool of the garden in the midst of the day. And the devil shows up and says to Eve, did God really say? Oh, my goodness. Now, there are some words that will get you in trouble, young people. When folks start asking you, did God really say that you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that? And then he goes on to say not only did God really say, but he says, well, you know, did God really say that? And if he did say that, I'm thinking he's keeping you from something good because he goes on in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Genesis to say, if you will eat of this fruit that he's forbidden you of, you will be like God. You see, what the devil is trying to do is change the identity of Eve. He's trying to say, don't accept what God said you are as his beloved children, but why don't you want to be like him? Because if you'll be like him, you'll be better. Because you'll be like God. And the Bible says that Eve looked upon that fruit, saw that it was attractive and beautiful to the eyes. She took of it, she ate of it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and they both sinned, and everything changed after that. You see, she believed a lie about herself, that she wasn't who God said she was, but was who the devil was now tempting her to be, took on that identity, and in that moment that she believed it, she acted on what she believed. 
Oh my goodness, folks, that is exactly where we are today. Our identity affects how we live out our lives. Now, what is your identity? Where, where does it come from? What do you think about it? Well, some of you, your identity comes from your family. You've got a family name you love and are proud of. Boy, I mean, you're really proud of it. You're excited about it, and you ought to be, because it's a good family name. You've done some great things. Your family has done great things. You've got a long history in the church. You've loved Jesus for a long time. That's awesome. We see that all the time. Um, Jesus was big on family names. Uh, he was big on family, period. You know, he started it to begin with. So, I mean, God did in the beginning. He and God in the beginning started the family. And so he's all about the family. In fact, Jesus is identified as the lineage of David. He comes from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. You know, so, so there's a lot of family history that's there. We look out in the world and we see all kinds of famous people, famous people like the Rockefellers or the Kennedys or the Bushes or even the Trumps. And, and, and they have this lineage and this identification, uh, this, this name that associates all kinds of things with them. And so folks are proud about that. We see it in the world of sports, folks like the Mannings. Yeah, you know, I'm from New Orleans. And so we had Archie Manning was the Papa Manning. And then we've got little baby Mannings like Archie and, I'm not Archie, but uh, Eli and, and Peyton. And wonderful Manning boys who kind of established themselves as these amazing quarterbacks and who've done all these amazing things in, in sports. And so we look at them. You've got families in your church uh, that, that have identity with their family. The Mills family, you know, here we are. And y'all are right here in the front row. And everybody knows who you are. And then we got, you know, Jeremy Fountain and his family. And, and you've got other, other, what, Tommy Fountain. What did I say, Jeremy? I don't know why I said Jeremy. I know it's Tommy. Tommy, sorry. Maybe Jeremy's here too. Maybe it's a brother you didn't know. Um, but Tommy, that's here. And uh, Fountain and his family. And so, you know, we've got, we've got families within the church. And, and I'm sure for, in fact, I know in both cases, they're not the oldest families in the church. You've got families here that have probably been here for, you know, dozens and dozens of years and generations. I know we have those in my church. And so sometimes it's our family that gives us identity. But sometimes in the world that we live, it's our feelings. Our feelings give us identity, and that's really where we are today in our culture. We live in a world today where what you feel is who you are. And for our young people in the world, this is a particularly difficult reality. Because all of a sudden what we're saying is, whatever I'm feeling in that moment is really who I am supposed to be. And the problem with feelings is though they are real, and though we feel them very powerfully, and though they are given by God for us, oftentimes to give us signals or signs to be careful or to warn us about things, they're certainly not dependable as an identity to live by. And the reason is because our feelings are often influenced by surrounding circumstances and situations. When the surrounding circumstance or situation changes, our feelings shift. For instance, you may be super happy today. Everything's going great. The sun is out. The temperature is awesome. It's a beautiful, clear day. And yet, you may be on your way home and receive a phone call that says one of your loved ones suddenly had a heart attack and passed away. In the midst of that beautiful day where you're happy and everything is going great, all of a sudden, something takes place that radically changes a circumstance, a situation. Changes that radically changes the way you feel about who you are and what's happening in that day. All of a sudden, you feel very differently. Now, are you a different person when you feel differently? Well, not necessarily. Hopefully you're not. But the reality is your feelings have suddenly changed pretty radically. Well, I deal in a ministry that helps people often navigate what those feelings are about. Many of the folks that come to see us at Living Hope are folks who feel a particular way, but that's not who they are at all. 
yet they believe they are that way. I, I, I want you to watch a little video of a young lady that's come to our ministry that talks about this very thing and how she wrestled with it and what happened to her. So watch this video. Homosexuality was the worst thing ever, and I, I didn't want that to be me. Um, also, a lot of my family and friends would say terrible things about gay people, about how disgusting and freaky they are, um, even to the extent of wishing death on them. So I thought that identifying with that would make all of those negative things true about me. So I just pretended that I was straight. And that continued until I was 19 and just couldn't pretend anymore. Um, I was tired of just trying to put on a mask and fool everyone about the way I was feeling. Um, so I reached out to a pastor who told me about Living Hope. And then I started going to their weekly meetings a few months later. When I came to Living Hope and met all these people that understood what I was going through and actually cared about seeing me grow, it was such a relief that I could be open with these people and know that they weren't going to judge me and that they really did care about seeing me grow in the Lord. I was really hoping to just get in and get out, that they would just teach me how to be straight and I could just go about my life. But that's definitely not what happened. They just kept talking about Jesus and I was like, okay, when am I gonna learn to be straight? They've taught me a lot about what it means to put my identity in Christ and what it means to be a real disciple of Christ and how much more important that is than trying to fix behavior or feelings. So at Living Hope, I've learned that I'm not defined by my feelings, even though that's what the world is shouting at us now. Um, I've learned that I'm not defined by what other people say about me or the labels that they've put on me. I'm not defined by my achievements or my failures. Um, I've learned that God is my creator and my king, and he's the only one with authority to tell me who I am and he says that I'm his daughter, and that's all that matters. My name is Dijanae, and I'm created in his image. Amen. All right, so that's Miss Dijanae. I love her name, um, and she's got all that happening. She's an she's amazing young lady, and she realized that her feelings weren't the thing that, had, that defined her, that God was the one and the only one who had the right to define her. So some people do their family, some people do their feelings, but there's some people that do their finances, 
Their finances define them, how rich they are. I want you to look real quickly for me at a passage that you might not think talks about identity, but I believe it does. Look in Matthew chapter 19 real quickly. Let's look there. And what we see in verses 16 through 23 is a story about the rich young ruler. Now, everybody knows this story if you've been in church at all. Most preachers preach about it when it comes to giving money, and they should. It talks about money. But I'm here to tell you that I don't think that's the main message of this story. And I think we sometimes miss the message of this story. Okay, Because I believe what is really happening here is something much deeper than that. This is what it says in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, and saying to him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, the first thing you need to know right off the bat is that this man is coming to Jesus. So he sees something intriguing about Jesus, something different about Jesus, something that differentiates Jesus from all the other teachers. And he's seeking to know something, about, something more about this Jesus. And he says, I want to know what good deed I need to do. And so his whole basis of being good is about what he does, okay? Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, what you know is the whole Old Testament is established to show us that we can't do anything good enough to get into heaven. Matter of fact, the Bible talks specifically um, in Romans 7, 7 through 25, and Galatians 3, 19, how, how the whole law is there to show us the gravity of sin and our inability to meet the holiness code that we have to meet in order to get into heaven. So, so it's all there to point us to the fact that we are sinful, sinful people and in need of a Savior. So he says, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm looking for what I need to do to have eternal life. Now, that's a great question. It's a great evangelism question, okay? It's the question that everybody who's a real big evangelist wants everybody to ask. And so the answer to the question is, let me tell you about Jesus. Will you pray this prayer? Okay, that's what most of us would want to answer to that question. But that's not what Jesus does. And I love that about Jesus. Do you notice how he does things like that all the time? He answers questions in ways we don't expect him to answer. So sure enough, Jesus, rather than saying, let me tell you what you need to do to have eternal life, he wants the man to recognize that he's not in the place where eternal life is a possibility for him yet because he doesn't understand who he is. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Well, that's a really weird response, right? Well, the reason he says that is because this Jewish fella and Jesus, being a Jew, knew that the only one who was good was actually God. And so if this man would have really seen that Jesus was the good that he said that Jesus was, he would have known that Jesus was the God that Jesus was. But he didn't see that, and so he missed it. He says, now Jesus says, if you want to enter, enter life, he said, well, keep the commandments which is, again, pointing him back to the law to show him that, hey, you haven't kept all the commandments. And the man said to him, well, which ones? Now, I love that response <laughs> because that's a you and I response, okay? That's what we would have said. If Jesus said, you need to obey the commandments, and, and the, the man's going to come up and say, okay, I mean, I know you gave like 10 of those, but really, are all of them necessary? I mean, some of them may be a little redundant. I mean, is there some I can just like go light on and go heavy on these others, okay? And that's really the way you and I approach Jesus as well. Let, let, let's be honest. I mean, we think we're going to live by all those commandments, but the reality is we kind of like some more than others because they're easier to do. Well, the man thought the same thing. So he says, well, which ones? And Jesus said, okay, let me give you a list. And here's Jesus setting this man up because look what he does. He said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man is happy, happy, happy. Why? Because what Jesus did is he actually listed six of the Ten Commandments. And he listed the six that are the last six, which have to do with our, uh, our horizontal relationship with each other. And the man was a good guy. 
I mean, he was a rich young ruler, but he was a good man. He liked people. He did things for people. He cared about people. And so he was a good horizontal relater. But you see, Jesus purposely left out the vertical relationship about God. He left out, left out the things like have no other gods before me and have no graven idol images and don't worship them. Don't take the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath holy. He left that out. Why? Because he wanted the man to have a spotlight on the fact that his relationship vertically with God was completely missing. His identity was totally tied up in the things that he would do and the things that he had. And so Jesus says to him, well, or the young man says, well, I'm happy about that. He said, all these things I've kept, I've kept them since I was young. Um, What then do I lack? Now, he knows that he's lacking something, and I love that again. You know, there's subtleties all through this passage. And he says, well, what is it that I'm lacking then if that doesn't get me into heaven? And Jesus says, well, here's what you lack. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, and the word perfect here doesn't mean without mistake as we often think it to be. What it means, and it means this most often when you see it in Scripture, what it means is whole and complete, okay? So if you want to be whole and complete, Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Wow. First off, Jesus knew that he was a man of great riches, even though he never mentions any of that. So he's identifying who he is by this unbelievable amount of knowledge he has about this man. But then he says to him, hey, the thing that you're holding on to the tightest, open that hand and let that go. You see, Jesus isn't against the man's money. Jesus is against the fact that his identity is the rich young ruler. Jesus says, if you want to really follow me, you can't put something in front of your allegiance to me. If you want to follow me, what you need to be is a complete and given follower of Jesus. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, show me that you will do that by divesting yourself of everything that identifies who you think you are and take on who it is that I am declaring that you are. You see, the problem with you and I is that we often believe that we are something that we've created when God says what you are is what I've created. And so you and I are children of the king. We are followers of Jesus. We are people whose treasure is not in this world, but in the world to come. Well, if we live that way, then we've got to stop holding on to all these things. Maybe our family identity, maybe the feelings that we have, maybe the finances that we hold on to. All those things, we say we have to let them go in order to do the one thing that Jesus commanded of him. He said, if you really want to know who you are, follow me. I believe those are probably the two hardest words in all of scripture, folks. Follow me. Because when you follow Jesus, where did he go? Well, Matthew 8, 34 tells us a little bit more specifically. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Same words. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, deny yourself, it means all the things that you dreamed and believed and hoped that you could be, all the things you created for yourself. He said, I want you to take those things, I want you to give those to me. I want you to deny those feelings. So, in other words, when you're feeling like Dijonet felt, and she said, I had all these feelings for other women, and I was attracted to them, and I thought maybe this would make me happy because I had this horrible background and this terrible abuse that took place and dads who called me ugly, and I never felt pretty. Because of all those things, I have now this attraction to women because they were safer. I I need to surrender that, even if I feel it. I need to surrender it and take on what it is you say to me about being your daughter. So I need to deny myself. How, how easy is it for us to deny ourselves? Well, it's not very easy, folks. It's hard to deny yourself because we want what we want and we want it now, okay? I mean, we just look around the room and see that, okay? I mean, we're all a little bit heavier than we probably ought to be. Why? Because that pie sure looks good. 
We had a cinnamon roll yesterday that I shouldn't have had, but it looked good. And I wasn't interested in denying myself at that moment. You know what I'm saying? So we got to deny ourselves. He said you got to, you got, so, so that means ultimately you got to die to your feelings. And then he says you got to take up your cross. Well, what does that mean? Well, the cross only had one meaning in scripture. The cross meant death. It wasn't a pretty little thing we hang around our neck or put on a hat or wear on a shirt. Not that that's bad, but that's just, it wasn't that. When you saw the cross in the first century, it meant death. That's all it meant. And so Jesus says you've got to deny yourself, die. You've got to take up your cross, you've got to die. And then he says you've got to follow me. Same words he uses in the Matthew passage. Follow me, those two crazy, scary words. What does follow me? Where, well, where did Jesus go, y'all? Jesus went to the cross to do what? To die. And so what Jesus really says about his disciples is if you want to be my disciple, die, die, and die some more. And when you die, die, and die some more, a perfect number three, when you die, die, and die some more, that complete number three, what you will do is actually live in a way that you never knew you could live. Because the Bible says unless a seed falls into the ground and it dies, it cannot bear much fruit. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says that, that when we die to ourselves, we are then come to life in him. We find our life when we lose it. You see, I think so much of us, so many of us have spent so much of our time searching for meaning and searching for identity and searching for who we are, how we are, where we are, how we should live. And Jesus says, I've given it to you. Come and follow me. Die to all the things you think you are and receive within yourself the reality of who I've created you to be and died for you to be. Surrender to me. And when your identity is bound up in me, you will live a life in a way that you never dreamed possible. Oh my goodness, it reminds me of a, of a young man that, that had some uh, really young parents. They didn't know how to hardly raise him. And, and they loved him as best they could. The dad was kind of gone most of the time. The little boy had a mom and two aunts and two grandmothers, but didn't have any grandfathers or uncles in his house. But he was a good little kid, a precocious little boy. And um, those ladies just loved on him as best they could. But as he got older, he, he kind of realized that he didn't have a lot of male influence in his life at all. He was kind of uh, just raised by a bunch of ladies. But he did really good in school, made honor society and all that stuff. And everybody liked him. He was a smart kid, and they applauded him. They thought he was great. But about the time he was um, about, about ready to graduate, he noticed that he started to have some strange feelings for some of the people around him, even some of his own guy friends. And he thought, wow, this is kind of weird. I don't know why I'm having these feelings the way I'm having them, but I'm having them. And he didn't want those feelings to be there, but they were there. It kind of scared him a little bit. And he thought, gosh, I, I don't think this is quite right. You see, what people didn't know about this little boy that was true about him is that when he was very, very young, his, one of his grandmothers married for the third time. And she married a man that came into their family and loved that little boy, took a lot of interest in that little boy. But what they didn't know about that man is that that man was a pedophile. And he began to molest that little boy from a very, very early age. And it happened on a real regular basis because mom and dad didn't want him to hang out with, with folks who you know, were just babysitters. So they'd bring him over to grandma and grandpa's house and grandpa would have his way with this little boy. Well, now this little boy is a young man and he's confused and he has all these weird feelings about other men. He doesn't know what to do. And, and even though he was very successful and, and got big scholarships to go off to school and everybody thought his life was together, the reality was his life was anything but together. And he was just beside himself with grief over the feelings that he had that he didn't want to have. And so he thought, wow, if I can't pray these feelings away, maybe I can just go away. And so he snuck early one morning into his mom's medicine cabinet, grabbed all the medicine that he could find, took those pills and hoped that he would never wake up again. But his mom found him and he did wake up. But several weeks later, he decided, you know what? 
I, I don't want to be identified with this feeling anymore, and I failed at killing myself. Maybe what I need to do is make this more absolute. I need to go and grab a gun in my dad's gun cabinet. And so sure enough, he went in and grabbed a pistol that he had used many times before, went back into his room, closed the door, and that night it was dark. He got down on the side of his bed, and he took that pistol, and he put it in his mouth, and he was about ready to pull the trigger when just about the time he was going to pull that trigger, he remembered that there was a friend of his in school that was a Christian. Uh, he had been to his house a bunch of times, and they had loved on him, and he thought their family was so bizarre and weird because they had such this weird kind of beautiful connection with each other. They loved each other and cared about each other, and that was very different than his family. And so he thought, wow, these people, they must have something, but they, you know, didn't know what the something was. But he had been to church with this guy because he was a singer, and the guy was a piano player, and uh, he had heard the preacher talk about Jesus and the gospel and how it would change you, and he thought it was the craziest message he had ever heard. This old book people believe in can't be true. It's crazy. But sure enough, in this moment, he thought maybe that was the only other option. He had never tried it before. He had heard that it could change you. Maybe it could. And so sure enough, in that moment, he pulled the gun out of his mouth, and he set out into the darkness of that night. God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're true. But if you can come into my life and change me, you better do it right now because I'm about to pull this trigger and paint that wall red. And in that moment, Jesus showed up to that little boy. And that little boy, when he stood up on the side of his bed that night, he still had a dad who was very dysfunctional and disconnected and a family who was a little crazy. And he still had a grandfather that would try to, to do things with him. But he stood up that night knowing he had two promises from God, one that said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and the other that said, I will be a father to the fatherless. Now, he didn't know that was scripture, but it was. And I know that that's a true story, y'all, because that's my story. That's where I come from. And I've now been married for 28 years to the most beautiful five-foot-nine, red-haired, green-eyed woman that if she walked in the door right now, my heart still goes pitter-patter because she is just gorgeous, okay? I don't deserve that. That's not who I should be. It certainly isn't what the world would have put a label on me to be. Because according to the world, everything about me was gay. But I'm not that. Why? Because I have a Savior who said, you know what? If you will deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you will bear much fruit. And I'm bearing the fruit, not of Ricky's life, but of a Savior's life who's living in me. I was willing to let go of the things that had labeled me and identified me in order to be what God had called me to be. What things do you need to let go this morning? Now, granted, I know for most of you seated in this room, you don't struggle with same-sex attraction or probably any kind of sexual sin because, you know, you're good Baptist from Georgia. <laughs> but the reality is, I'm telling you, you may be struggling with something that's bigger, that's a big sin that you think you can't get control of. I'm telling you, the problem you have is not that your sin is too big, it's that your conception of our Father is too small. And God is here this morning to say to you, young person that's addicted to pornography, older person that's addicted to pornography, or addicted to something else that's controlling your life, the God that we serve says, you know what? I raised Jesus from the dead never to die again. If I can do that, I can handle whatever little problem you've got. I am the creator of the universe. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. He wants to set you free this morning. He wants to give you the identity that comes when you surrender your life to him. Won't you come and be his child this morning? Won't you come and accept him as your savior? Won't you allow him to bring life in you and through you that you can't even imagine? I pray you'll do that this morning. Shall we stand together and let's sing a hymn? And if you feel a need to come and make a decision this morning or to join this great, wonderful Baptist church, the pastor and the staff will be down here to meet you. You come as we sing together. You come.